0: Your Bibles with me and open to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Today actually marks exactly the three quarter point in our sermon series. This is number 33 of 44. And so fitting uh, that the sermon series meets this uh, transitional time uh, 75% of our way through because. Uh, What you'll find is that Paul has made this long and sustained theological argument leading all the way up through chapter 11, and then in chapter 12 really begins to uh, just unload a number of practical exhortations and guiding the church in their actions, and so uh, it's just a fitting time for us uh, to come to this text. Romans chapter 11, verse 25, if you picked up one of the Bibles, uh, one of the Red Bibles is on page 947. And uh, I want to invite you one more time, if you're able, to stand so that we might honor the reading of God's holy word this morning. Romans chapter 11, verse 25 through the end of the chapter, verse 36. Hear God's word. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth Father, would you now magnify your name, magnify your mercy, because this is what we desperately need, and thank you for giving us one another uh, to do those very things in our lives. What a blessing the church is. So publicly, corporately just give you thanks for these brothers and these sisters. They get together and sing and you minister and show your love and your care for us through them. And it just, it it binds us together. And uh, we give you thanks and ask that you would do that even now through the preaching of your word. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. In his work uh, titled, The End for Which God Created the World, Jonathan Edwards has an interesting take on what makes men happy, what is the source of our happiness. Here's a couple of sentences from that book. He writes, God is their good. Their happiness is nothing but the emanation and expression of God's Glory. In other words, Edwards recognizes that because God wants our good and our ultimate happiness, he gives us nothing less than himself, allowing us to see him and know him and enjoy him because, as Edwards says, God is our good. Uh, The emanation and expression of his glory is the source of our happiness. Now, I think Edwards is right, but Edwards wasn't the first to note that. In fact, if you remember from Romans chapter 9, Paul had made this argument on a text that's, that's actually, I think, quite hard for us emotionally as, as people. Uh, Paul began to, to note throughout the text that in salvation history, God has had mercy on whom he will have mercy. He's hardened whom he will harden. And then he basically brings up this, this question of, of, of why God would harden individuals, and he says this. He says, what if God has endured with much patience vessels of destruction, those individuals that he's hardening. What if he's endured them with much patience, these vessels of destruction, uh, prepared for destruction, in order to make known to vessels of mercy, to those who are saved, in order to make known to us the riches of his glory. Now, we you think about that, I mean, just contemplate that for a second. The God who loves his children so much that he makes very clear in Romans chapter 8. He loves us so much that he did not spare his own son, instead sent him to die for us so that we could be saved. He loves us so much that he's working out everything in our lives, everything in the world for our good. He loves us so much that he communicates to us nothing in all creation, we'll be able to separate you from the love I have for you. That's how much God loves us. And so what does he do? Paul says, because he loves us that intently, he's worked all of salvation history because he wants to make known to us the riches of his glory. Well, how does making known to us the riches of his glory square with his deep and passionate love for us? It's because those two things fit together perfectly. If God is our good and our happiness is nothing less than the expression and emanation of His glory, then by showing us His glory, God is showing us His great love for us, isn't He? Now, I know that we don't typically or naturally think that way in our own relationships. I mean, I'm not going to say to any of you I love you so much that I'm going to really let you just bask in my glory, right? If I just said, you know, I've bracketed off 24 hours today, and I'm going to sit with you, and I'm going to tell you just things about me that are so great and glorious. 1989 was an exceptional year for me. You're going to hear all about it, you know. And uh, I'm just going to share my feats, my skills, just, just kind of let you take in how glorious I am Everybody not only knows that that's silly, but I think we understand why that's not loving. The reason that's not loving is because I'm quite finite in how glorious I am, right? And just to let you know, I'm not just using myself, though it is true, but it's not using myself just as, a, as, a, as an expression of, you know, self-deprecation or something. We could, we could do this using a number of other things. What if I said to you, today, for the next 24 hours, I'm going to let you enjoy this pencil, and how glorious it is! You would say that's far from loving. That actually feels like punishment, because a pencil—I don't know—maybe lasts. You know, satisfaction gives a second, right? Now, what if we ratcheted that up, and I said, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you today enjoy the nicest car that has ever been built in the history of the planet." That's definitely more glorious than a pencil. I think, I think it could uh, give you a little bit more lasting satisfaction. A whole day's worth? Maybe not. What if we go up a little higher and I say the Grand Canyon? I'm going to set aside a day where you can go out and explore it and enjoy it in all its glory. You, you might say, wow, not only is that very satisfying, but I, I could use a bit more than a day. And then what if somehow I could say, I figured out a way that you could safely explore the entire ocean. Well, now you might say, I need far more than a day. And why? What what is it proving? What, What those illustrations and ratcheting up each one of them is proving is that the greater the glory, the greater the satisfaction it can provide. And yet nothing in all of creation can provide Lasting satisfaction. Why? Because everything in creation is finite in its glory. So what does the God who loves us and wants us to find the deepest satisfaction and the most lasting satisfaction we could ever know give us? The answer clearly is Himself. For God alone is infinite in glory. Consequently, when God gives us Himself, when God expresses His glory, when He makes known to us the riches of who He is, that is the most loving thing God could do for us. To do anything other than give us Himself would be less loving, because only the infinitely glorious God can satisfy our souls for all of eternity. Now, I know that's a long sermon introduction. But the reason I wanted to make that whole introduction is because I think understanding that is the key to understanding why our text ends the way it does. Paul, after making this long argument about how God has worked with ethnic Israel in history, how he's worked with Gentiles and bringing salvation to this group and then this group and all of these things, at the end of our text erupts in this praise, verses 33-36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments! How inscrutable His ways! For who is known in the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor, or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. That is to say, Paul erupts in praise and thanksgiving to God. It's as if he just cannot hold it in any longer. Why? What brings him to that point? Well, what brings him to that point is the one sermon point I want to make today. Now, that's a bit deceptive. Because Aaron looked at the slides after I put my sermon slides on there, and he walked in my office and he goes, six sermon points? Really? And my answer is, kind of, right? Um, So I really just have one sermon point. And I show it because I put it in italics when it's on the slide. That's my one point. Um, But in order to get there, I want you to understand the argument Paul makes in verses 25, uh, leading up really to verse 32, which I think is the encapsulation, the main point of this text. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to walk through uh, the text today. And I'm going to give you, this is what I would call with the interns, when I sit down with the interns, I, I say to them, I'm not yet looking for a preaching outline, just give me, we call it the exegetical outline, just give me the outline of what the text teaches. If you had to just make an outline of what's Paul's teaching, do that, now we'll work with that we'll eventually get to a preaching outline, but before we get there, what's the exegetical outline? Just outline for me Paul's points, what's he teaching? That's what I wanted to do this morning. I just want to give you an outline just so you understand the argument Paul's making, and then I'm going to make my one-sermon point. Okay, so here we go. What's Paul's argument? The first point of Paul's argument is this. God hardened Israel so that salvation would come to the Gentiles. God hardened Israel so that salvation would come to the Gentiles. Now, this is a point that we saw last week, so this is a refresher. So I'm not going to spend much time on it. But this is exactly where Paul begins. You remember, uh, in verse uh, at the end of uh, our text last week, Paul had said to these Gentiles who are believers, "Don't become arrogant and, and look down upon the Jews uh, who are unbelievers, because you don't have any kind of special right to salvation. Right? God could just as easily save them as He saved you. Right? There's no place for arrogance." And so he starts on that note in verse 25 saying, lest you be wise in your own sight, that is, lest you kind of exalt yourself, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now again, we saw this last week, but the way that God worked in salvation history is one of the things he did is that when the gospel came, when Christ came, when he lived and died and was raised, and when the gospel began to be preached, Israelites, corporate Israel, by and large, rejected that gospel message. And one of the things Paul says to us as we looked at the text last week is their rejection of the gospel is actually part of God's plan because their rejection, their hardening was so that the gospel might then come to the Gentiles so that we might be saved, right? That was the argument Paul made last week. This is just a refresher in verse 25, so I just want to make this point. We'll move on quickly. But God hardened Israel so that salvation would come to the Gentiles. Point number two in Paul's argument. Israel's hardening was only partial and is temporary. Israel's hardening is only partial and is temporary. Now, why, would, why can we know, why can we say that Israel's hardening was only partial and is temporary? Well, it's because of two words in verse 25. The reason we know it's partial is because of the word partial. See, this is, it's very hard work, sermon preparation is. So verse 25, uh, lest you be wise in your own side, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Now, now what Paul means, the reason he says a partial hardening has come upon Israel, because this is is why I've used this phrase over the last three weeks, uh, when I've said uh, corporate Israel, the Jews, and I'll use this phrase, by and large, or in general, what I mean is, and then I say, uh, have rejected the gospel. What I mean is that most of them are rejecting the gospel, but not all of them. Paul himself is an example of an Israelite who's come to faith in Christ. And, and as Paul pointed out at the beginning of Romans chapter 11, uh, God has been preserving himself a remnant of believing Jews from every generation, ours included. There are, there are a number of unbelieving Jews. It's just a minority when you compare the whole Of Israel, all of the Israelites. And so Paul just says in God's saving plan, where Israel rejected the gospel so the gospel could go to the Gentiles, it was only a partial hardening. There are still Israelites saved in every generation. So that's why I say Israel's hardening was only partial. The word I think that indicates that it is also only temporary is the word until. Right? A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In other words, the reason that right now we look out in the world and we say, man, for generations not many Israelites have believed. The reason is because a partial hardening has come upon them from God, but that partial hardening one day is going to be lifted, and and everything's going to change. Okay, so, That partial hardening, that that hardening was only partial and and is temporary. Number three in Paul's argument. A massive number of Israelites will be saved at or immediately prior to the return of Christ. A massive number of Israelites will be saved at or immediately prior to the return of Christ. Now... Let's take this a piece at a time. First of all, why am I arguing that this text teaches that a massive number of Israelites are one day going to be saved? Well, because look at verses 26 and 27. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be by covenant with them, when I take away their sins. So, 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 why do I think then that this text teaches, those two verses teach, that one day a massive number of Israelites are going to be saved? Well, because first of all, when Paul mentions, now again, I, maybe this is very clear, I just want to be overt about it. When Paul speaks about Israel, he's, he's still speaking about ethnic Israelites. He's been using Israel that way all the way through. Now, it is true in other parts of the Bible, Paul will rather uh, use Israel um, sometimes to refer to Gentiles. So in the book of Galatians, Paul will call Gentile believers the Israel of God, meaning we're the people of God. And earlier in Romans, Paul can say a true Jew is one who has been circumcised in his heart, meaning that can be Gentiles as well. But in chapter 11... He's been dealing the whole time with ethnic Israel, asking questions about them, that corporate ethnic people Israel. I think he's doing the same thing here in verses 26 and 27 when he says, And in this way, all Israel will be saved. He's speaking of a day when ethnic Israelites will be saved. Now, I don't think, though, that when he says all Israel, most likely he doesn't mean every single Israelite without exception. The reason I don't think he means that is because other times throughout the book of Romans, when Paul will talk about all being saved, he doesn't mean all without exception, every single individual. So, so for example, remember early in chapter 5 of Romans, I think it was verse 18, Paul can say, um, <clears throat> you know, in Adam all died. That's all without exception. In Christ, all are made alive or all are saved, right? He, he, he's not making a reference here, not meaning every single individual in the world is being saved. No, they're clearly going to be on the last day individuals who are damned, who are condemned, and bear God's wrath. But, but, but he's using all in, in a way not to mean all without uh, exception. I think he's doing the same thing when you get down to verse 32 of our text. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Now, when he talks about he's talking about mercy here in a saving way, and he's saying throughout history, Gentiles have been consigned to disobedience, Jews have been consigned to disobedience. Why? So that he may have mercy on all. It does not mean there um, all without exception, as if every Jew and every Gentile throughout all of history is going to be saved. But I do think by all, he means a massive number of Israelites. And the reason I say that is, 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 one, because he uses the word all. You don't mean all to mean few, right? You don't use all to mean few. I don't think he means all without exception, but he does mean all in a massive number, I think. And also, remember back in earlier, uh, in, in, in last week's text, in chapter 11, verse 12, Paul can say this, chapter 11, verse 12, now, if their trespass... Means riches for the world. He was talking about if Israel's rejection of the gospel means the gospel has come to the Gentiles. So if their trespass means riches for the world and their failure, Israel's rejection of the gospel, means riches for the Gentiles, the Gentiles had the gospel come to them and were saved. How much more will their full inclusion mean? See, the word he uses there is, is fullness. How much more will their fullness? Now, at that time, Paul's referencing the fact that Israel's been rejecting the gospel, but he looks forward to a time when a full number of Israelites will come into the faith. A full number, a full inclusion of them. Or as he uses in verse 26, all Israel will be saved. So that's why I say there's coming a day, I think, when a massive number of Israelites will be saved. It may not be every single one of them without exception, but don't err on the side of few. It's going to be a massive number of them. Okay, why then do I say I think that's going to take place at or immediately prior to the return of Christ? Well, let me give you a few reasons for arguing that. The first reason I think it's going to occur at, or immediately prior to, the return of Christ is because the verse Paul uses in verse 26, right, in this way all Israel will be saved as it's written, and then he uses a verse from Isaiah 59, the verse John Winfrey read earlier for us, that speaks of... The deliverer, the Savior coming. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish in from Jacob. Just the imagery of that fits with the imagery of, of Christ coming to his people. So I think Paul's using that verse, speaking of the coming of the Savior, to look ahead to the time when Christ will return. A second reason why I think that this is uh, going to happen at or immediately prior to the return of Christ is really because of a verse that we looked at last week. Do you remember what Paul said in chapter 11, verse 15? Again, he's doing the same thing he did in chapter 12. If Israel's rejection of the gospel meant that the Gentiles were saved, what would Israel's acceptance of the gospel mean? But, and now he's going to go even more, something even better. And here's what he argues, verse 15. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And I argued last week, and I think I'm only confirmed in that this week, that that phrase there, life from the dead, is a reference to the resurrection of the dead, is a resurrection from the, to the time when Christ will return and those who are alive will be glorified, those who are dead will be raised from their graves and given glorified bodies to live with the Lord forever. So, so already Paul's made this argument, I think. Israel's rejected the gospel. That meant the Gentiles has been, have been saved Israel's going to accept the gospel, and what's that going to mean? But that Christ is going to raise us from the dead. it It will point to the moment that Jesus will raise us from the dead. But the third and final reason that I think Israel's going to be saved at or immediately prior to the return of Christ is because of that phrase there in verse 25. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until... The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then Paul talks about Israel's salvation. In other words, it sounds like Paul saying this. A partial hardening has come upon Israel so that they're rejecting the gospel. <clears throat> Therefore, the gospel is going to the Gentiles. And they're being saved in large number. You and I are representation of that. Gentiles are being saved in large number. Now, that partial hardening, it looks like, is only temporary... And the day it's going to be lifted is, according to verse 25, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Which I think the clearest way to read that that phrase there is, when God has saved all the Gentiles, he's going to saved, save. When God's brought in all the Gentiles that he's going to save, then he's going to save this massive number of Israelites. Now my argument is, I don't think there's any way that can happen and then there'll be a lot of time before Jesus returns. For this reason, I mean, think about it this way. Let's say that this partial hardening is going to be lifted, and then there's going to be a whole month go by. Then it would work this way. The gospel's being preached, Gentiles are being saved. All of a sudden, a massive number of Jews are being saved, and no more Gentiles are being saved, and then we go for a month's time. That wouldn't be good for Gentiles. Then Paul's argument would have to go something like this. If Israel's rejection meant the Gentiles are being saved, what would their acceptance mean? Well, that no Gentiles are being saved. It doesn't work. So I think what Paul's saying is this. A massive number of of Jews are going to be saved immediately prior to or at the return of Christ. Now, I don't know how this all works out. I don't know if this is a Damascus Road experience for a whole corporate ethnic people. I don't know, right? But it looks like At, or just prior to the return of Christ, Jesus is going to all of a sudden save a number of Israelites, opening their eyes so that by faith, because every man saved the same way, they place their faith in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ, seeing Him as their Savior, as their only hope, and a massive number of Israelites come to faith. And then, at, or immediately prior to, Christ returns. And Gentiles and Jews who have placed their faith in Christ are raised from their graves. Their body is glorified, and they're with Christ. That's point whatever I'm at right now of Paul's argument. Um, I think that was number three. Number four in Paul's argument then is this. The reason God is going to save a massive number of Israelites is because of his love for and gracious promises to the patriarchs. The reason God's going to save a massive number of Israelites is because of his love for the patriarchs and because of his gracious promises to the patriarchs. Now, I say that because I think that's exactly what Paul's argument is in verses 28 and 29. In 28 and 29, he says this, As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. What do you mean by that? As regards the gospel, Israel is enemies for my sake. Well, I think he's just summarizing what he's argued so far. As regards the gospel, they're rejecting Jesus Christ. They've made themselves enemies of God through the rejection of the gospel. But that was for my benefit, for my sake, because the gospel came to the Gentiles. Therefore, people like you and I believe. That's, that's what he's saying in verse 28. As regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved For the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. In other words, Paul is saying this. When God made the promise, take take for example the promise God made to Abraham. When When God made the promise to Abraham, taking him outside and telling him to look up at the stars and saying, Your descendants, your offspring, are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. That was not speaking only of Israelites, only of his physical descendants. As we've argued before, it's all those who believe, Jew and Gentile alike, so that we've said, you and I, because our faith is in Christ, we're called in the Bible, sons of Abraham. So that night, when Abraham looked upon the sky and he saw all of those stars there representing his descendants, as Rich Mullen says, one of those stars had been lit for me. One of those stars were lit for you, right? But... When God made that promise, though God intended much more than simply Israelites, he did not promise Abraham less than that. God's promise to Abraham was, I'm going to save people who will be your descendants, and that's going to include Gentiles and Jews. In other words, God's promise to Abraham is, I'm going to save a bunch of people. That's why he said there are numerous as stars in the sky. I'm going to save a bunch of people. I'm going to save a bunch of Gentiles, but I'm also going to save a bunch of Jews. Now, historically, it doesn't look like God has saved many Jews throughout history. But, oh, there's coming a day when he will. And that day is coming because God made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. And he loves them and said, I'm going to save a bunch from your Uh, physical offspring, right? He's going to save a bunch of Gentiles, bringing them to saving faith. So that's point four in Paul's argument. The reason God's only, the reason God's going to save a massive number of Israelites is because his love for and his gracious promises to the patriarchs. Point five, and finally, in Paul's argument is this. God's saving plan involved Jews and Gentiles walking in disobedience and then receiving mercy. God's saving plan involved Jews and Gentiles walking in disobedience, and then receiving mercy. This is uh, the final point of his argument here in verse thirty-one, or thirty and thirty-one rather. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient. In order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also receive mercy. You see what he's doing there? Disobedience, mercy. Disobedience, mercy. Let's take them one at a time. When he begins in verse 30, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, what he's saying is, you, he's meaning Gentiles. Gentiles were one time, by and large, as a corporate group, were just characterized by disobedience to God. Read the Old Testament. There are not a bunch of Gentiles coming to faith. Instead, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the on and on and on, the Gentiles are idolaters, rejecting God, hating God, being punished by God. Yes, you have your exceptions. You know, Rahab comes in, Ruth the Moabite comes in, on and on and on. But, it, but it's not like in the Old Testament that there are floods of Gentiles coming to be the people of God. No, 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 no. That's just not the case. They're largely characterized by disobedience. And that really lasts almost all the way up to Paul's missionary journeys. Gentiles were at one time disobedient, but something changed, right? Verse 30, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, their being Israel's. But now you've received mercy because of their disobedience. What happened though is when Jesus came and lived and died and was raised and the gospel began to be preached, Israel was disobedient. They rejected the gospel. What happened? The gospel then was directed to the Gentiles. And then what happened? They received mercy. They begin coming to faith in great numbers. There's an amazing change that happens once Christ lives and dies and is raised and the gospel becomes uh, the message that people are going out and, and preaching here and there and everywhere is that Gentiles for 2,000 years have been coming to faith in massive numbers. We at one time were disobedient, but we've now, because of Israel's disobedience and the gospel coming to us, we've now received mercy. One time disobedient, now receive mercy. He's now going to do the same thing with Israel. Look at it in verse 31. So they, Israel, they too have now been disobedient. He's just making reference there to the fact that Israel now in the present time, and by the present time we mean the last 2,000 years, right, ever since the coming of Christ and the preaching of the gospel to the whole world, in, in this time, Israel is largely characterized by disobedience. Yes, there, there are some coming to faith, the same way you see some Gentiles coming to faith, but, but not in the same kind of measure and number that Gentiles are coming to faith. So right now, Israel has been disobedient. By and large, they are a people who reject Jesus as the Messiah. One of the things I heard a, a guy say recently, he said he, he met with a group of um, Jews, and they just had all their different varieties and shades. I'm this Jew, but not this kind of Jew. I'm this kind of Jew, but not that kind of Jew. And all of a sudden, he's talking to them. They're like 10 different kinds of Jews. And he says, is there anything you guys all hold in common? And they go, yes. We don't think Jesus is the Messiah. Right? By and large, disobedience. But disobedience, mercy. Disobedience, mercy. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. In other words, now that the gospel has come to the Gentiles, now that you've received mercy, that's the last thing that needed to happen in order for Israel to be shown mercy as well. Everything's set in place now, and there's coming a day when Israel will receive mercy as well. And, and whether it happens in one moment or over a little period of time, whatever it is, one day we'll be able to stop and say, Israel, by and large, is characterized by faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. That day is coming. We were disobedient. We've received mercy. They are now disobedient, but one day they, too, will receive mercy. But what's the, what this shows is that as part, that was part of God's saving plan, right? This is, this is why for chapters 9, 10, and 11, God, Paul has been arguing so much about God's sovereignty, his providence, the fact that he's in control of this. He's mapping this out. This is not happening by accident. God's saving plan went this way on purpose. Gentiles would have a time of disobedience, then they would be shown mercy. Israel would have a time of disobedience, and then they will receive mercy. Why? Well, this is now the one point of my sermon, right? Okay, here it is. The Lord has designed salvation history in such a way as to magnify His grace and mercy. The Lord has designed salvation history in such a way as to magnify His grace and His mercy. Why did God do it that way? Right? He, instead of having a large time when Gentiles were disobedient and now are being shown mercy, instead of having a large time where Israel is disobedient and then one day they will show mercy, why couldn't he just have a time where everybody was shown mercy? Why have a time? Why, why was this part of God's saving plan? Why was this part of his design? Why, why did he do that? Right, if you and I were drawing it up in our arrogance, we might say, Lord, I know a better way you could have done that. Why did God do it this way? Paul answers in verse 32, for God has consigned all to disobedience. That is, here's what, here's what Paul means. God has made sure that both Jews and Gentiles had a time of walking in disobedience. He consigned. That's God's sovereign. I'm in control. I'm carrying them. I planned. That's the kind of language used there, right? This isn't some accident going on. God consigned all to disobedience. There will be a time when you walk in disobedience, Jews and Gentiles. Why? That he may have mercy on all. In other words, it may be that if Gentiles and Jews had never walked in great disobedience, if in the Old Testament the Gentiles look at Israel's God and go, that's the God who created the world, we believe His promises, and they flood to God. It may be that when the gospel is proclaimed to Israel, if Israel by and large just goes, that's right, that's our Messiah, and they all flood in, we might go, you know what? These Jews and Gentiles, they're good people. They they really deserve this. Salvation, we shouldn't so much talk about it as a gift from God. He's, He's giving people what they deserve. These are good people. Gentiles are good people. Look at them. Coming to Israel's God. Jews are good people. Look at them. Coming to faith in Christ. But God would not allow salvation to be perceived as something that people earn. He would not allow salvation to be looked at as something that people deserved. He wanted it to be clear. If anyone is saved, it is an act of His mercy. That's why He consigned all to disobedience, so that it might be mercy He's pouring out. If they never were walking into disobedience, it would be like their wages, their earnings He's pouring out. But they walked in disobedience so that he might pour out mercy and then that it might be clear. In other words, God did his saving work and his saving plan this way, consigning Gentiles to disobedience before showing the mercy, and Jews to disobedience before showing the mercy, so that it might magnify his grace and his mercy before all men. God does not allow salvation to be about the exaltation of mankind. Salvation is about the exaltation of His grace and His mercy. Now, here's my question. Why would that truth, that God designed salvation, not to exalt mankind and our goodness, but to magnify and exalt His grace and magnify and exalt His mercy, why would that lead to Paul then erupting in the very next verse with, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable are His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been His counselor, who's given a gift to Him, that may not be paid. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Why does the truth of verse 32 calls Paul just to erupt in praise to God. And my answer is where we begin. Because the greatest gift God could give to us, the greatest expression of His love for us is not exalting us and giving us our glory to enjoy. The greatest expression of God's love Is to magnify his own greatness. Magnify his own grace. And magnify his own mercy. So that we might enjoy the glory of who he is. As the glorious, gracious and merciful God for all of eternity. Did it not move your hearts this morning to sing with the people of God. His mercy is more. If we had gotten in this room and all sang together, aren't we good people? That would do nothing for our lasting satisfaction. But to be able to say, our sins, they are many. We have been disobedient. But His mercy is more. And you know what? That's exactly the way the Apostle Paul thought. Why bring up as a category our disobedience when we sing our sins are many? Why get together and say that? Because think of the way the Apostle Paul did. When he wanted to exalt the grace of God in 1 Corinthians 15, what did he say? I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. I think that's Paul saying... Whatever you've done with your sin, I can one-up you. You think what you did is bad? I persecuted the church of God. You know what grieves the Holy Spirit? When we gossip and backbite against one another, when we attack the body of Christ. Paul said, I physically did it. I persecuted the church. Why bring that up, Paul? Because he wanted to say this. But by the grace of God... I am what I am. Paul has no problems bringing up his past because he wants to magnify God's grace and mercy. And brothers and sisters, this is the way God designed all of salvation history. His plan wasn't for us to be good enough. His plan was that when our disobedience was very clear to us because the law showed us we're sinners deserving of death, at that time, he sent his son to live, to die, to be raised, to do what we could not do for ourselves. Why? So that it would magnify that salvation is not the work of man, but that it might magnify the mercy of God. And he's given us this meal so that Sunday after Sunday after Sunday he might magnify his mercy. That we might never lose track of the fact that his mercy is magnified. That salvation is is God exalting his grace and God exalting his mercy. And you know what? That's the best thing in the world for us. My prayer for us then is that we would become a people who sit with our God who rest with him, who seek to know him more and delight in him more and enjoy him more and love him more and who are then moved, as Paul is, by the fact that that great God has worked all of history and worked all of eternity to exalt himself and then give himself to us. So it's then, I think, fitting for us this morning to come to the table and give thanks to God who has given us himself as his son came and lived and died and was raised. So let's take a moment of silence this morning as we prepare to come to the table and the ushers and musicians get in place, and then we'll distribute the bread and the cup, and we'll eat and drink and give thanks together. Let's take a moment of silence this morning.